Greetings again, everyone. Mr. Dart is up, I think, in Knoxville, is he not, this Sabbath day? Uh, began in the van a couple of days ago and is having about two or three different ministerial meetings along the way in the southeastern part of the United States. And so we're without him today, unfortunately, but uh, our loss is their gain, as they always say, to be charitable. I think Ron enjoys getting out and hitting the open road, although I know he doesn't like being away from home. If I were to go out here in the shopping mall in Tyler and walk up to some big bruiser and just kick him in the shins and knee him in the groin and punch him in the belly and just try to beat up on him, I might make him mad. And if he were about six foot eight, he might turn around and just beat the living daylights out of me or waylights or whatever. Then if I came back here on the following Sabbath and stood up here in the pulpit and I decided I'm going to lay my conflict on you. That big bruiser had no right to beat the daylights out of me just because I hit him a few times. And so I come in here and proceed to tell you, Satan attacked me in the parking lot this past week. Now, if I succeeded in involving you in my problem and getting you to believe that Satan was attacking you because I had been almost soundly thrashed in the parking lot, I've done something that I really don't think a minister is supposed to do. The title of this sermon for Sandy for the tape program is Easy Does It. I once saw a bumper sticker. I'm not quite sure what that meant. It could have had an evil connotation. But the bumper sticker said, Easy Does It. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is true in sports. It is true in interpersonal relationships. It is true in many, many aspects of life. I used to go down to a bowling alley within walking distance of Ambassador College many years ago with my brother-in-law, Vern Matson, back when Don Carter, you may remember those days, was for several years the ABA, whatever he called it, champion. And he was coming through Pasadena, and he would come by your place on the bowling alley and give you about a five-minute lesson. You paid a certain number of dollars, five or ten bucks, and... And you got to bowl a frame or two or three, or I mean a line or two or three, but he would come by and give you some lessons. There was a fellow bowling there that I used to watch in a bowling league, and I mean that looked like a contortionist having an attack of uh, Parkinson's disease who had graduated, graduated from St. Vitus College. Because the guy, he would stand, I can't even, I'd have to, to show you. Have you ever seen people pose in a bowling alley, go up and put their feet close together and kind of stand there, get their body English already. Well, he would stand there and he'd get this weird posture, and then finally on the backswing, and the ball was almost totally over his head, took about five real fast steps, nearly slung himself down the aisle, and just crazy-looking thing. Then, of course, he was a terrible bowler. Well, here came Don, and he began to show Vern, my brother-in-law, and then me, how he did it. And he made it look so easy. It was so simple. He only took three steps. He didn't take four like I was doing. And right then and there, he told me, he said, it isn't, you don't need to be an athlete to be a good bowler. It's not an athletic game. You do it easy. You do it real simple. So he showed me how to hold the ball, not up here, and push it out here and let it fall way down and come all the way back up here and then run with it in the air and sling it and do all sorts of things, get all kinds of muscles moving but just to hold it right at your waist and just slowly let it down and take only three steps and keep your hand absolutely straight. I did it. Got a strike. Got another strike. Boy, it was just so marvelous. I'm telling you the truth, and if Cheryl would have said that, I could have proved it. 
Immediately after, she didn't save my score. I kept it for years. But immediately after Don left our position, I was golfing, uh, golfing. I was bowling in the league, and I was, oh, probably about a 160 or so average. And I went down to number 12 when they finished up and place cleared out. And we had our cheeseburger, and we stayed a little later, and we decided, let's bowl one more line. And I shot 247 within minutes after that instructor left. That's the highest I've ever done. I've never done it before since. And if you know how to score bowling, I only missed a strike, I think, on two frames. And I believe that I struck on number, uh, the last one, number 10, then struck all the way out even to do that. It was an incredible score for me, 247. And it was so easy. And I began averaging 200 in the league as a result of that. So every time I'd step up to the bowling alley, to the, to the line, I would say... It's not athletic. Don't try to look good. Straightforward. Real easy. Easy does it. I'm learning the same thing in golf. Just certain very smooth, easy principles you learn about the swing, and you can really start peeling the strokes off your score. It's the very same thing in life. If I went every Sabbath to a church congregation where I went away feeling like I had been bruised or whipped or beaten or put upon, where the pastor was continually taking his problems and saddling them on me or burdening me with his difficulties and his concerns and people attacking him and the problems he's had at home. I begin to wonder about that. I think there's a great deal of scriptural justification for what I'm about to say. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 first, which is one of the most important scriptures about the Holy Spirit and about what God is doing with us. What is the spirit and the attitude of God's people? What kind of a result will having the Holy Spirit of God in our minds bring about? Paul was telling Timothy in verse 6, Wherefore I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a mature, or it says in my margin, of soberness, of a sound, a steady, a tranquil, if you will, a peaceful mind. Certainly not an enervated, exhausted or riotous, or nervous, or apprehensive, or fearful, or frightened mind, a mind of insecurity, of fear, of terror, but of the, of the opposite of that, of, of tranquility, of total security, of a feeling of absolute placidity, of evenness, and of peace. In Romans, the eighth chapter, it also tells us that we have not been given the spirit of fear. Verse 15 you, and we can say this to the church, at least the church should be able to hear scriptures like this read, have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, when they were in that religion of that day, which was a religion of absolute bondage, they lived in fear. When you stop to think about the tremendous protection you have in the American system of jurisprudence, even though I become quite irked and irritated with the slowly moving wheels of so-called justice and with so-called recidivism or revolving door justice where people that have what is called a rap sheet of 25 convictions as long as your leg for everything from auto theft to mugging to rape to assault to assault with a deadly weapon to armed robbery and are back out on parole or on the street within hours of being arrested and go out and rape someone, commit a murder, and how many times you've read in the newspaper that the guy who just perpetrated a murder has 
been out on parole right now today. They're looking for a black man over here in the Chino, California area who butchered an entire family, and he was out on parole from a murder count, I think of some sort, only one month earlier. So it moves very slow, yes, that's true. But yet, look how much better it is than the system they had. How would you like to exist in a society where you knew all it would take would be two conspirators who would get angry enough at you that they would be willing to risk their own necks and you were as good as dead? Now think about that a minute. Because that happened, you know. That happened time and again in ancient Israel. And if we're going to sit here and think every one of those cases were detected, we're just wrong. I have no doubt at all that under that system, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a person could be condemned to death, that there were, in some isolated cases, no doubt, conspirators who entered together into a conspiracy to simply do someone in and went and swore and testified that they heard him say or they saw him do something and stuck to their story and they had no lie detector tests in those days and simply had the guy hauled out there and put to death. Now today, as I say, oftentimes we wail and weep and moan because people aren't really punished as speedily or punished uh, to the degree of merit or to the degree that the crime deserves the way they should be. But we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. I can tell you as I stand here today, I've talked to several families in the last two weeks. One family took almost the entire day with me in my office and told me stories that would just about curl your hair. I talk to them on the telephone. They write me letters. They call from all over the country. I'm talking about families in some occasions who have been in God's church for 15 and 20 years. I saw a grown man with his chin trembling and tears just about to flood out of his eyes, telling me in his own way, we have been through hell backwards, Mr. Armstrong. We feel like we have been dragged through hell backwards. Our lives have just been a wretched mess these last many years. It's just been one horrible fight and struggle and trouble after another. And the most mind-boggling thing that happened to these people was having their own minister lie like a fishmonger's wife, bald-faced, open-eyeballed, lie after lie right in their face in a meeting with that minister's superior. Now, it drove this poor family so distraught, finally the gentleman didn't know what else to do. He felt guilty. He didn't think he ought to be doing it. But, you know, sometimes people just get pushed beyond the limit. And so he tape-recorded his minister on a matter that had to do with a legal problem between brethren and certain depositions and a pending court action of some sort. The minister made certain protestations. He was going to be the man's protagonist. He was going to help him. He wanted to even have the man underline certain portions of a deposition, make him copies. He made the statement that the other gentleman involved ought to be put out of the church. I will help you, etc., they come together, now there are three of them, the other man's superior, and this gentleman said, well, did you not say you would help me, and didn't you say that Mr. So-and-so here would be put out of the church? Oh, no. Why, I didn't say that. But you didn't? Well, he had the tape recording in his briefcase. Well, didn't you say? So he asked him about three or four or five times. 
and quoted him right off the notes he'd taken. Well, no, he didn't say that. Well, Mr. So-and-so, I'm, I'm sorry to do this to you, but uh, I'm going to play a tape for you. Boy, you talk about problem. Because his wife had taken the tape and she just excerpted, cut out, and just put together those few little statements he was asking about. So he just punched the tape recorder and they all sat there and listened to it. Ordained minister sat there and his face just got purple and then red and then white and gray. And he was just caught like a fish wiggling on a hook. And he didn't know what in the world to do. But I'll tell you, I don't know if he was any more embarrassed than the family that caught him in it. I think that worked both ways. I think the family that sat right there and were just being uh, devastated by finding that the people that they trusted were willing to sit right there and bald-faced lie to them had more put upon them than the minister did by being found out. Because by this time, he's probably a professional at it. He's used to it, you know. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit we're the children of God. Well, I'll read on back to where I was, verse 15. You have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship, whereby we cry, Abba, which is an untranslated Hebrew word, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs, with Christ. Now, the world cannot get that through their head. I was on with a radio call-in talk show to Fresno, California yesterday for approximately an hour and a half or so. And they quoted this William Martin who has read or written some articles for Atlantic Monthly and has written a whole great big thick book called The Kingdom of the Cults to which he has devoted a great deal of time to Herbert and Grinder Ted Armstrong. In that, they say that we have borrowed our religion from a hodgepodge of JWs and Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists and Catholics and all sorts of other people. And don't you say, now Martin quotes, says this moderator on the radio call-in talk show, that man can become God. I retort, I said, you know, the Pharisees became outraged at Jesus and tried to stone him to death in the synagogue in Nazareth. Because they said, you, being a man, make yourself equal with God. And it blew their minds. He said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And they became so enraged because they said, how can you, being a man, make yourself equal with God? I said, if the gentleman who wrote the book had read the first part of my father's booklet. In the first place, I didn't write it, my father did. But I said, you need to read all the booklets. You need to read the fact that he very painstakingly explains that the word God in English comes from a Hebrew word. It's not an English word. And that the word is exactly synonymous with the, the word family, or group, or collection, or assembly. It is a plural word. And that God, the word Elohim, was the word that was used when in the first chapter of Genesis, that God, or family of deity said, let us make man in our image. And I said, no, Mr. Martin and other people that write against that book that are trying to show, it's as if a man has the incredible pompous ego to say he's going to ascend up and to be big as, as big as, or bigger than God. As if man's going to mount up and take God off his throne. Now God isn't God anymore, but now that man is God. And I said, that's just another form of lying. But I quoted this scripture. I said, if you're going to be a joint heir, you've got a rich uncle. He dies. You're his heir. What do you inherit? He leaves you everything. 
Are you his dog? Are you his pig or his parakeet or his little pussycat on his lap? Or do not you become the heir and you move inside the house? You sleep in the bed. You don't sleep on the floor. You eat at the table, not on the floor. You don't pick out of the garbage can like a dog or eat sweepings from the table or leftovers from the meal. You're the heir. I said, if you have a child, at what level is your child born into your family? Is he born into the dog level or your pet level? Does he become your pet or your property? Or is he your son? And is he not at your level? And eventually he can come to know more than you do. He can excel and exceed. He can actually really learn some things that Father didn't learn, perhaps, because knowledge is accumulative, and he can learn more because more knowledge is being revealed. He could succeed in a higher level. But he can certainly be thought of, in every sense, as being absolutely on a par or equal or level with his father when he reaches that age. And certainly when his father dies and he inherits, then he is on that level. And he is not some other sub-level or some animal level. And I told him, in that sense, when you understand the whole booklet, you're trying to get me to say, I believe what my father taught? You bet I do. Because I said, it's not just because my father happens to teach it. I'm sure hundreds of other teachers have taught the same thing. Jesus did. No doubt there have been many that I haven't known who have taught that man can inherit all things, and when he is born into the kingdom of God, and I quoted the scriptures, that Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, he's the first fruit of the dead, that we will become a member of the family of God. But you see, they lie in the way they twist and interpret. They pick one statement out of context. They try to tell people, we believe we're going to become God, meaning we replace God. No, no way. But if you're going to be a member of the very family of God, that is one of the most hair-raising, earth-shaking, awesome, almost incredible, impossible statements that could ever be made. It would be much easier for me to preach a doctrine that you would be brought into the kingdom of God or heaven, wherever it might be, at the dog to the master level. Much easier for you to swallow, easier to cope with. Well, I can understand that, people might say. I asked on my program the other day, is this a soul factory? Then on the next program I asked, is God a soul farmer? Now you stop to think about the doctrines of the world, and that's what you're dealing with. A farmer goes out here and he tills the ground, and he fertilizes it, and he plants seed, and then he harrows and rakes and cultivates, and he waters, and he waits for the crop to come up, and he goes out and he harvests his crop. Now, the way the pastors in all of these Sunday churches are teaching their people, we are the crop about to be harvested. And God has planted us. And every time the old world turns, thousands of souls escape bodies. Apparently, God is producing. Where do they come from? Nobody explains that. But somehow, more souls are coming into bodies and being put into little fetuses or babies whenever they claim they're put into them because people are being born faster than people are dying. So there are always more souls to replace those. So actually, if God were in the commercial soul business and were trying to look at his balance sheet and to say, you know, is he gaining ground, he might be able to say in one way, even though most souls are going to, to hell every day, I'm gaining ground because the raw number of souls coming into existence every day is bigger than the number of souls going out. So eventually that curve is going to cross 
when through all of my evangelists down there, like Ernest Angley and all of them, doing the very best they can, getting these people saved, someday I'm going to be on the upswing of the charts and there will be more souls coming into heaven than there are souls going down to hell. Now, I say things like that deliberately, you know, to bug people. And it does bug them. It, it, now, wait a minute. What's he talking about? Well, the reason I do that is because people go to church all their lives and they never hear a sermon explaining what happens after the third day or the third week or the 30th or 300th year that you are in your heavenly mansion, on your heavenly rocking chair, on your heavenly porch. What then? And they don't tell you what, and they don't tell you even why. Why does God need any help? Isn't he big enough to do whatever he needs doing all by himself? Is it just that God loves his children and he wants all those souls up there and it just boggles their mind? Well, then, of course, I get them puzzling over that, a little curious over it, and hopefully they open the door of their mind, a little crack, to think, well, now, wait a minute, he makes me mad, he unsettles me, he upsets me, I'm going to find out where he's wrong and I'm going to disprove all of this. And they begin to listen a little bit. The real truth of Almighty God just angers and irritates people to where they cannot stand it. And they're continually trying to find that little niche into which I fit. And they can't find it. They want to put me in Protestant fundamentalists, but the minute they do, all the Protestant fundamentalists kick it back out of there and say, no, he doesn't belong in that one. And they want to put it with the Mormons and JWs, and they can't stand me either. And they say, no way is he any one of us. And they just keep trying to fit me in some niche, and it just doesn't fit, and they don't know where in the world to fit me. Well, as I've said in the past, if you could program a computer, and perhaps you really could, with every word of the Bible cross-indexed, cross-referenced to where every doctrine exactly as we understand them, for example, every scripture you know in the Bible about the soul, or heaven, or hell, or judgment, or the millennium, where will it be spent? Revelation 2.26, 3.21, Revelation 5.10, Revelation 24, it'll be on the earth, etc. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth, or the meek, rather, etc. Every time you punched up a button, you want to go into the subject of where will people go, you know, when they inherit eternal life. And the computer would spit out about 260 scriptures telling you, on the earth. You could interrogate that computer and you would find it would not fit any of this world's religions at all. But you could interrogate it with regard to the truth, and you would find it would be right on the button every single time. In Galatians, the fifth chapter is the famous fruits of the Spirit chapter. In verse 22, we're familiar with that, but to read it again and refresh our memory quickly. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, there are several others here, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness and faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And all of these are very admirable, very wonderful, warm and good Christian qualities. But you would think in a descending order of importance that when people as a group, as a a global or an international or a national or a statewide organization, or even as one congregation, don't have much love, almost never illustrate any joy, are never at peace, not with themselves individually, between families, as a church congregation. 
their Sabbath services or Sunday services are generally chew-out sessions. They go to church wondering, I wonder who's going to be listening to me today. I wonder if I should watch my mouth. What should I say? What shouldn't I say? They wonder, I wonder who's going to be named from the pulpit today. I wonder who's going to get the axe next week. I wonder who's going to be put out today. I wonder if this is the day I'm disfellowshipped. And they are continually existing in an attitude of fright and of concern and worry and fear, then this is precisely like taking the temperature of a person you suspect of having a fever. Your child comes running in, you feel their face are all flushed and they're dizzy and they say they got a headache. What's the mother going to do? The very first thing, get the thermometer, put the child down. Here, put this under your tongue. Don't move it for three minutes. Take their temperature. Now, how do you take the temperature of a church, of a spiritual organism or organization? Are not these scriptures the best possible thermometer by which we can evaluate, not judge, but we are to evaluate? There is a certain amount of judgment which the Apostle Paul says we are to utilize. He says, if you have matters in a church, do you or should you set those who are least qualified to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it that there is not a righteous man among you who can be able to settle these things? And he was really urging them to set those of the most experienced, those who were most educated, who were more mature, and to be able to tell them all the facts and let them get busy and be arbiters and try to settle the matter between brethren in a church congregation rather than let antagonisms and age-old feuds develop between brethren and people always at each other's throats. So there is a way to settle that type of thing. But when these feelings or these qualities of Christianity are absent from a group, absent from the leadership of the group, if there is no love, no love in them, just implacability, imperturbability, almost a feeling of contemptuous, arrogant hatred. If there is nothing but a feeling of absolute police state rigorous demands to obey, and that is what is going to get you in the kingdom of God, then where is love? Where is there any room for an honest mistake of a little kid that uh, wets the bed now and then or messes his britches. I mean, how does mom handle that? you just beat the way out of him every time? Is that the way to cure the problem? It says the next is joy. If you can't find ebullience and an effervescent spirit and joy and happiness, then where do you go to find joy? I said in a recent sermon where I was dealing with a subject which is a little bit interrelated to this, which has to do with human character and which has to do with human conscience. Where I was trying to point out to people that your conscience comes into play and that this old statement, this old catchphrase that has been used so often, let God work it out. Meaning, no matter if your minister lies to you, you have no responsibility. Sit there, take it, believe it, let God work it out. It's not your responsibility. That would be like saying to those who were kicked out of the church under diatrophies, let God work it out. Well, now, God doesn't always intervene when evil men have their way. And the Jeremiad of Ecclesiastes, for example, and that uh, Jeremiah's lament, lamentations, are examples in the Bible of prophets of God who wept over the fact that evil men prevail and that the only thing required for evil men to succeed is for good men to do nothing. And that oftentimes there is a responsibility for good men to act according to their conscience 
and to stand up against that evil and say, enough, enough is enough, and any more is way too much. But if they do not do that, then does not the Bible say, and doesn't it characterize the false prophets of prophecy, of being those who, quote, make merchandise of God's people, who exploit them, who viciously rip off the wool and fleece the sheep, who continually rule over with cruelty and harshness the flock? And is not that the description continually of the false prophets whom come, who come under God's condemnation? So it does say that peace is the next in order, and that's what I want to concentrate on today, because the word peace was the very word that Jesus used most often in greeting to his own disciples. Jesus talked about it a good deal. I'll give you one example in Matthew 5 right now out of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, the fifth chapter, and verse 9. I have not known any people. I know that one of the great statesmen of this day, Philip Habib, is in that role. And, of course, I'm sure it's a very laudatory role, although I don't think he has a lot of success. He's had certain limited success in the Middle East. But that's a very volatile area of a great deal of hatred and strife. But in verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I think it is ironic, and I think it's also instructive, that back in the early days, probably about the 1860s period, when Samuel Colt came along with one of his famous designs, which are still extant today, he called his famous 45 the peacemaker. Because when you used it appropriately against your enemy, then suddenly your enemy was at peace. And you were at peace because you had blasted his heart to a pink mist and he was lying inert on the ground, bleeding his life's blood into the soil, and there was no more noise coming from him at all. And so they called, of all things, a gun, a revolver, a single-action Western revolver, the peacemaker. Well, this isn't what Jesus had in mind. Let's remind ourselves of one scripture where David said in verse 6 and 7 of Psalm 120, I want to read that because David was a king, and being the king over the government at that time, David, of course, had to enter into various negotiations with the Jebusites and Philistines and Perizzites and Hivites and with Edomites and Ammonites and Moabites and all the others. And David expanded the territory, but eventually David's territorial acquisitions were complete, and he had that area of territory God had promised to Abraham and to the children of Israel, and David wanted peace. So no doubt when he prayed for peace, he really meant it. Verse 6, My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, when I want peace, when I say enough war, let's have calm, let's have tranquility, they are for war. Now why is there no peace between the United States of America and the Soviet Union. I won't read all of Isaiah 59, but Isaiah 59 is the famous chapter where it talks about how they hatch the cockatrices or the adder's egg. They weave the spider's web. Their web shall not become garments. Their plots will not pan out. The way of peace they know not. And it talks about how our iniquities are separated between us and God so that He will not hear. Why is it that we can sit in front of our television sets when the President of the United States is making a speech. And back in the winter, he made one of the most moving speeches I've ever heard a President make. He never missed a word. It was extempore. It was ad-libbed. 
Well, maybe he was reading something I couldn't see, but I just think that being a former actor, he's able apparently to go over those things so well and memorize them that he just, they just flow. And he's an excellent speaker, and he never missed a word. And he called upon the Soviet Union for disarmament and for the United States for backing down and disarming and calling for a halt in the production of nuclear weapons and a call for these people to sit down at the conference table and talk about ways and means of just obliterating nuclear weapons from the arsenals of all nations. And he was calling for peace. He was like David, when I am for peace, and he was for peace, why doesn't the Soviet Union respond to that? Well, in the first place, they don't believe it. Now, you see, a liar is unable to believe a truthful man. Do you understand why? Because liars, in spite of the fact they are rotten liars, have their own little rotten ego. Liars lie to themselves. They justify their lies. They say, oh, well, I am lying now to preserve the church. I'm lying because I have to. Because if I didn't, things would get out that would hurt other people. Oh, I see. There are all sorts of justifications people can use for lying. Now, when liars lie, and liars justify, and they rationalize about the lie, then when a truthful man speaks to a liar, the liar cannot believe he's truthful. Because if he does, he's admitting that's a better man than himself. His ego won't let him do that. So his ego says to himself, I bet he's lying. Because his ego won't let him say, I know he's an honest and a truthful man, even though I am not. The Soviet Union has leaders who are practiced liars. The Soviet doctrine, the Ten Points, like the Ten Commandments of Leninism, is that promises are like pie crusts they are made to be broken. There's a difference between geopolitical pragmatism, which is, in other words, let's do what works. If it works, let's do it. If that means force, if it means the threat of force, if it means back off and wait ten years and then make a little move over here somewhere and work around through all sorts of parlays or agreements or power blocks or preferential trade agreements or quotas or building bridges through trade and cultural exchanges in order to subvert a nation. If you think for one minute that there are not Soviet agents, sometimes teenagers and long hairs, standing out here in the crowds on the campuses saying, we're anti-nuke, anti-nuke, and get involved deeply inside the American church-led, Catholic church-led oftentimes, with a cleric letter that recently was adopted, anti-nuclear, ban the bombs, stop and halt the production of nuclear weapons, let's have unilateral disarmament, and there are Soviet agents inside our country deeply involved in urging these young people forward, saying let's lie down on the road outside the army base, Let's scale the wall here at the uh, nuclear uh, power plant at San Onofre. And let's have a big sit-in at Three Mile Island or whatever. Sure there are. Because that is a part of their plan. Like Nikita Khrushchev said, it was widely misinterpreted. He really meant that eventually their system was going to so prevail that it would just swamp us or it would bury us. It didn't mean they would have a spade and a shovel digging our grave, but that's the way it was taken back in the 1960s, the early 60s, when Nikita Khrushchev was quoted as saying, we will bury you. 
So when our president makes what I believe is an honest statement, makes what I believe was a, an eloquent historical appeal for world peace, a moving, almost sermon-like message to the world and to the Soviet Union of let's think about our children and grandchildren and a world of peace and prosperity for all. He wasn't believed by the Soviet Union, and they thought he was lying. They think that's just a front. He is a liar, and the CIA is doing this and that and the other thing. I want to tell you a story about how this works so you can understand the mind of man. This man was a pilot for Global Airways, which is a ferry firm that does nothing more than deliver aircraft to other countries abroad which are purchased in the United States. And when you go to Central or South America or the African countries of the Middle East, you do not see an awful lot of twin and single-engine aircraft made in Europe or elsewhere, and they certainly are not made in the Ivory Coast at Abidjan. They're not made in Togoland or Mauritania. They're made up here at Wichita by Cessna and Beechcraft. So this man was based in... Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and he was going to deliver a Piper Apache twin-engine airplane to South Africa. But in order to get there, he had to fly all the way the northern route because he would not have been able to go across from the tip of South America to Dakar and down. The plane just didn't have that kind of range. So he had to go all the way up to Gander and from Gander to Baffin Island to Frobisher from Frobisher to Greenland, from Greenland to Iceland, Iceland to Scotland, Scotland on down to the tip of Portugal, or I think he went to the Madeira Islands, and from there he went on down to the Cape Verde Islands, and from there he was going to go, I believe he could make a non-stop leg to Windhoek, which is the capital of Southwest Africa, or Namibia, I guess they're calling it now. So he knew that there was very great trouble over there at Luanda, and he knew that the Portuguese and the Swapos and everyone were at it, and of course the African mercenaries were at it, and some of the Americans had been incarcerated, and some of the South Africans were inside the country, and uh, so he hoped that he could avoid Angola at all costs. He's just a civilian, but the company that hired him made sure that they didn't even wear a little wing of any kind. All they did just have a plain jumpsuit with a little American flag sewed on the corner. That's all they wore. Well, the gentleman's flying along in his Piper Apache on his flight plan from the Cape Verde Islands. And uh, he flew all through a part of the night from about 2 or 3 in the morning. And when, he, when he, the dawn came, he looked at just a sea of fog completely covering the entire seashore. Well, he stayed about 100 miles plus off the coast of Africa. And I've flown the same route, so I know what that's like. And he, of course, was right now out of VOR from the Cape Verde, and he was not yet within range of the ADF, which is a low frequency, just like any radio station that would have come in from uh, Windhoek. And all of a sudden, he began to smell electrical uh, fire, and without any warning, every one of his instrument lights and everything went out. I mean, his primary, secondary navigation, his radios, everything went out. Uh, you know, an airplane runs on magnetos like the old, old cars used to. You turn on the master and line the batteries up in series to start it and give it a start as a starter generator. But once it's running, you can turn the master switch off. The master switch remains on. A trickle charge is going from the generators to the batteries, but the spark that is igniting the pistons as they turn is supplied by a magneto system, 
which is like a harness of wires wrapped around that provides a spark as it looks, pardon me, whirls around. And all of you mechanics and, and fellows that remember the old 1930 Model A's know what that is. So the cockpit is filling with smoke, and he immediately hits the battery master and knocks it off. So he begins to experiment. He turns it on, smells the smoke again. So he turns all of his radios and everything off one by one and pulls a whole bunch of circuit breakers, puts the master back on. So little by little he experiments. He tries his number one comm, number one nav. No problem. Circuit breaker stays in. He tried a couple of other things. Well, it turned out that he lost about half his instruments. It was some kind of a short somewhere. And every time he tried it, it would pop the circuit breakers back out. So he just left them off. And he's flying along with the raw navigational instruments of one ADF, one comm. But every time he turns the comm on, he smells the smoke again. So he decides, I know what I'll do. I'll just fly in my magnetos. I'll go by dead reckoning. And I'll leave everything off. And when I've got to communicate... There was another airplane flown by another man that he knew somewhere within a couple hundred miles of him, he thought, in the air at that time. I'll just turn the master on, the number one comm on, communicate for a few seconds, and then turn it right back off again. So he tried this. He never did communicate with him, but finally a 747 from South African Airways en route to London heard the call, because he's on 121.5, the international emergency frequency, and told him that he ought to take a bearing for a certain city over right on the Angolan and, I believe, the uh, South African border. So he headed inland over a sea of fog, just dead reckoning. Couldn't see a thing. Finally, he began to see breaks ahead, and he kept flying, and finally there was one clear spot and just fog as far as he could see, and he said, i got to go down. All he could see is one like a dirt track. He was trying to cut a railroad and fly the railroad to Windhoek, but he never found the railroad. He got down lower and lower. There were just some low, brush-covered hill, uh, hills. Found a dirt road. Made a nice landing. Put that twin-engine Piper Apache, brand spanking new, being ferried over there to South Africa, on that roadway. Rolled to a stop. Was trying to collect his wits. Tried to call again from the ground, tell somebody where he was, and began wondering about putting on his ELT, the emergency locator transmitter that would put out a squawk and a beacon, tell him where he was. About that time comes barreling down the road a truck full of dungaree-clad blacks waving AK-47s. From the other side come a bunch of them running. And over here, he had landed almost in the middle of this bunch of communist-led guerrilla fighters who were trying to take over the entire nation of Angola. Well, now all of a sudden a nightmare began. They jerked this guy out of the airplane, an American civilian, and they put him on the dirt, and they tied his hands and his feet, and they wrapped a little, one of their little flags around his face. And he was so exhausted and so frightened that even in that position, lying in the dust of that road, he fell asleep. Well, a few moments later, they came along and prodded him with one of these uh, automatic rifles and lurched him up to his feet and hustled him off in a truck and took him to a smelly, rat-infested prison house in a nearby jungle kind of a town where he had a little can, I believe, in one corner and a high little window way up here with some bars in it and just dirt and filth from other inhabitants and he was locked in there and he was left and they would shove a bowl of some thin kind of gruel or soup in there and he was in there for several weeks before finally some Portuguese-speaking black came in and through a combination of sign language, Portuguese, and Pidgin English, tried to get him to understand he being taken to Luanda. 
So they bundled him in a truck, and he was taken to a big prison in Luanda that turned out to be a political prison filled with political prisoners that these communists had arrested, and he's thrown into a cell, again in isolation. Well, to make a long story short, that man was there for two solid years. He was questioned, he was beaten, he was starved, and the questions were always the same. Admit that you were spying for the CIA. You were flying an American airplane. You had an American shoulder patch. You were right over our army bivouac. You landed right in the middle of it. He would just tell them the truth and tell them the truth and tell them the truth, and they wouldn't believe him. Years went by, two years. Finally, through the International Red Cross, his mother learned that he was there. She had to make, I don't know how many trips, it absolutely broke them to Washington to see a couple of senators from her home state before they would do anything. It took approximately another year and several broken uh, negotiations where he would be put in a truck and told we're going to be exchanged, we're going to get out of here today, and then three months would go by, he'd hear nothing more. But this civilian ferry pilot spent three years from about 1978 or 9 until just a few months ago in a rotting prison in Luanda because he happened to land in the midst of a bunch of illiterate blacks who were busy waging war in some other country. had nothing to do with him at all, and they just wouldn't believe him. Now, I want to just pass that on to you. I read that in an aviation magazine just a couple of days ago, just to show you what the mind of man is capable of believing and what people in other nations really think of the United States of America. Do you think for one minute that the people in Nicaragua believed their press when the press actually showed them a bottle with a label on it of some kind of brandy that they claimed the female uh, U.S. Embassy, they're going back home. And this is the way of people. Now, this is no different than one family fighting with another family, or a wife and a husband, or good friends who have a falling out, and have two totally different points of view, two totally different opinions juxtaposed to each other, who have complete conviction in what they believe, each one of them absolutely convicted that they are right and they know they are right, and the other feels that he is right and knows that he is right, and the truth is they are both wrong to a pretty healthy degree, or unhealthy degree, and neither one is willing to budge an inch. And that basically is the way human relationships progress, even among church people oftentimes. I know of people who have made themselves my enemies and hate me with a purple hatred that is like a disease. And it doesn't bother me because I don't hate them. I don't have to take my time up with preaching sermons and naming them and, and accusing them or talking to people every time I get a little audience of people. Do you know what so-and-so is? And he's an evil so-and-so. And he did this and he did that. Do you know how long God is going to listen to someone who, when he stands there in Judgment Day, and God says, now, you've had quite a problem with your attitude concerning being judgmental. You have been arrogant and proud, and you have been self-righteous, and you've been judgmental. Yes, but, Your Honor, he did... You know, they're not going to get very far. They're, they're about the time they start to point. You know, we used to call the old ambassador salute. 
uh, about the time they point in the direction of somebody else, God is going to shut their mouths right then and there. And he's going to tell people finally, haven't you ever learned yet that salvation is such a deeply personal and private thing that it doesn't matter if you can haul out here a hundred people and tell me a thousand evil sins that every one of them did, that that does not affect you and it doesn't get you off the hook, that you can't stand here and give me the catalog of all these other alleged or real sins of someone else and have that whitewash you. But they don't seem to understand it. Nations cannot live at peace with each other. The group and the tribal instincts, racism, which is alive and well in East Texas in Tyler today, Feelings of superiority regarding accent, education, certain taste in clothing, the kind of an automobile you drive, the things that divide and separate people and do not make for peace are extant in church groups. And you can find that there are congregations where people will go in and out of that congregation year in and year out and virtually never speak to one another. Will it be certain people, two or three or five, in any given congregation of about a hundred that will be implacable enemies. And they will never learn. And, and literally 15, 20 years can go by. I used to know in any given sermon when I would speak to people exactly who and where they were seated were the ones who absolutely hated me, hoped I would just start to strangle and make this little noise and topple over of a heart attack. They would have leapt out of their seats and danced around and just praised God for joy if I'd have done it. And it does make you uncomfortable. It is hard to cope with that, I know. But still, it doesn't really take anything away from me. It doesn't do anything to me vis-a-vis -vis my salvation or whether or not I will ever make it into God's kingdom. People could sit there and just, just cringe I remember one time I walked up to such a person after a sermon, and I just, uh, I won't identify at all, of course, but one, I just had enough, I guess, and this one time I was just looking at the daggers and, and the, the, the look up and just, you know. So finally I just said, where would you like me to cut it? And this person said, what, you know, like that? I said, where would you like me to cut? Would you like to start here or here? Shall I go home and take a, a warm bath and use my wife's razor blade, or what would you like me to do? And then I just had a nice little chat. Try, you know, work on it if you can. It would be better just to stay away from services because I know you're unhappy, you're uncomfortable. I make you uncomfortable. I wish I didn't. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I think it would call for too much courage on my part that the only thing that will get you in the right attitude would be my suicide. I can't do that. I'm just a coward when it comes down to suicide. You have to understand that. You've got to forgive me best bet would be, when I'm preaching, stay home, for pity's sake. Both of us are better off. You don't have to suffer. I'm not uncomfortable. And then you can hate me from afar. You know. And I just talked to this person. I don't know if I did this person any good or not, but it did me a lot of good because it helped me get this kind of out, you know, and out in the open. From that time on, if I'd see that person sitting there, I'd always know. There you are, you know. Um, same old attitude all the time. In Psalm 34 and 14, you know, David said a great deal about peace, and yet isn't it strange that David was a man whom God would not allow to build a temple because David was called, quote, a bloody man. But David was a person of a great deal of emotion and a great heart. He was able to deeply repent when he was wrong. David was not the kind of a man you wanted as your enemy if you were a Philistine, or if you just happened to be a young Philistine soldier when David was thinking about a young girl he wanted to impress and decided to go up to the feet of Saul with a sodden bag of 
double the number Saul really wanted. I don't think he took those little items from those people uncomplainingly. I think that probably they gave them up a little bit. Uh, well, let's not go into that. Anyway, here in Psalm 34 and verse 14, Depart from evil and do good. This is in one of the songs, you know, my uncle put to music. Seek peace and pursue it. To pursue peace. We'll get into how to do that a little bit later on. A couple more in verse 119. I should say Psalm 119, verse 165. We've read this time and again. Great peace have they which love thy law. Now why and how do you have peace? In John 20 and verse 19, we read this continually at the Passover season, Jesus says there is a difference between the kind of peace that people have in the world and what he is talking about. But let's go to John 14 first. John 14 and verse 27. John 14, 27. Jesus says, this is on the final evening before he was crucified, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Because you see, the world is like what they used to say, and it's probably a racist statement, an Indian giver. I guess that's a bad statement. You stop thinking. Never thought about it till that moment when I said it because uh, an American Indian might not like that. I suppose that means someone who gives something and then takes it back. So let's just say a false giver, someone who doesn't give it but uh, lets you borrow it a while and then takes it back. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Oh, if that could be preached to the church of God. Neither let it be afraid. How is it that I have mature men in their 50s and 60s, families who have put up with it for two decades, sitting at or near tears in my office telling me story after story of wretched heartache, of upset, of anxiety, of frustration, of fear, and of worry, and of anything but peace and joy and happiness. Troubled hearts. Troubled minds. They say continually to me, Mr. Armstrong, I'm just confused. And here's the way they put it. So I won't get into names or anything, but just so you understand the human element. It's like I say, look, I believe in somebody. I believe in Mr. So-and-so. I know he wouldn't lie to me. He's an honest man. He's a godly man. He's a God-fearing man. And I believe in him. I stand for him and with him, and I look to him as a leader on my behalf. And he wouldn't lie to me. Now, he tells me, A. Now, three months later, he tells me, Y, instead of A. He tells me A is wrong, and now it's something else. Now, that, that scrambles my brain. That confuses me. Now, I know it's not his fault. He had to be right both times, right? Because I believe in him, I love him, I respect him, I look to him. And he had to be right when he told me this, and he had to be right when he told me the exact opposite. Now that drives me crazy. What's wrong with me? Something's wrong with my stupid mind that I can't quite get that to fit and be happy with it. I've had people wrestle with that exact problem right there in my office, trying to cope with being told one thing, and then being told, I've heard that you believe in one thing that I just told you three months ago, and you're not to believe that, and it just goes, you know, just, just tilt. Uh, they just go crazy trying to figure out what's wrong with them. 
Something wrong with them. And they absolutely are troubled. I think that word was used time and again. We've just been troubled. We're just troubled by this. And Jesus says to his church, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Continually, Jesus talked about peace and said that he himself is called the Prince of Peace and used the expression shalom. When he met his disciples, it was always peace. When he was in the uh, waste of the boat, he was down below, and it was a huge tempestuous storm. I wrote about that and tried to make it come to life in Peter's story. Finally, Peter said, don't you care? We're about to drown. He got all excited. Jesus came up. He stood. He put out his hands to the wind. He just said, shalom, peace, be still. Don't be troubled. Don't be tossing. Don't be topsy-turvy and turbulent and turgid and in turmoil. But just be tranquil now. Just settle down. Peace. And even the wind and the waves, just great calm came over. And there was not a breeze rippling the surface of that great big lake. And they started across with their oars because their sails were now just absolutely flat and wouldn't work. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Well, then where is it? He gave it to us. It's supposed to be in God's church. It is supposed to be the prevalent mood of peaceful, tranquil, settled, stable, placid environment in which people can do their very best. How can you do good work, whether you're on an assembly line, whether you're a gardener, whether you're a computer programmer, a housewife doing needlework or cooking your husband's meal, a student in a class, if your mind is not settled. I cannot do two things at once. Now, some people can carry two or three things on their mind at one time. I like to kid myself or maybe flatter myself that I can do that. I'm not sure I really can. Oftentimes, I'm concentrating on something. My wife is talking away and says something. I'm saying, yes, yes, yes. She's saying, did you really hear me? I said, sure I did. All right, what did I say? I don't know. <laughs> well, sometimes I know what she said, but it didn't get it all. So maybe I'm kidding myself, but I don't always think of two things at the same time. But I'll guarantee you one thing you cannot do. You can't bowl, play tennis, play racquetball, or play golf with something else on your mind. Now, I cannot abide, so don't ever let me ride with you in a right seat. If you're going to talk to me while you drive, and you think that the only way to talk to another human being is look right into his eyes. Nothing drives me crazier then you going down the road at 65 talking to me like this. Did you know what happened the other day? And so I'm, I'm trying to say, wait, look out there. I'll hear you. You know, you don't need to look at me. I've seen people driving and they've got to look at the guy in the back seat, you know, and talk to him while they're driving down the road about 65 miles an hour. It scares me to death. You really shouldn't do two things at the same time. And that includes oftentimes even driving and talking. But... You know, the driving is fairly simple, and we put it on auto cruise and wide open highway. It's not bad to talk when you drive, I suppose. But there's some things you just can't do two things at once. You can't have two things on your mind. I don't know how in the world you can be troubled and upset and distraught and distracted, and you can have problems on your mind, and you can do a good job. I can't go in there and do a good radio program if I'm filled with worry, or I'm afraid, or I'm upset, or I'm in turmoil. It's just impossible. I can't do it. I can't write a good article. I can't preach a reasonable sermon. I can't do anything well. I can't hit the golf ball well. I can't uh, do anything that I might want to do and do it well if my mind is troubled. In the 16th chapter of John, in verse 33, Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you, and this is at the conclusion of this very lengthy address just prior to his crucifixion, 
that in me you might have peace. In and through Jesus Christ, the disciples, who were to become the twelve leaders of the New Testament church, might have peace. In the world, in your worldly contacts, from the world and from the world's persecutions, you will have troubles and tribulation, but be of good cheer. That tribulation is not to burden you or bear you down. I have overcome the world. Now, the troubles that come, come from what source? The Bible plainly says they are to come from Satan the devil or from the world. They're not supposed to come from your brethren or from members of your own family or from your dearest friends. And certainly, your troubles are not supposed to come from your minister. Now, there are many things that I might do that I would not want to share with you. Many things you do you wouldn't want to share with me, and I won't even go into it because people will accuse me of making wrong references in a sermon. If I get sick, maybe you'll hear about it indirectly, but that would be about the only way you're going to hear about it. I don't want you to know what happens when I get sick. But, you know, if I have troubles... I go out here and I get involved in some altercation involving a car wreck and a suit and something like that. Why should I come in here and put that upon you? You ever stop to wonder about a minister that will take the pulpit and take his own personal problems and just take them and lift them up and just hang them like a thousand pound weight on the heads and the shoulders of all of his people? It'd be like saying, I'm sick and I had to hurt last night and I brought this plastic bag. I want to share it with you and show you all these horrible things that happened to me last Now, that's a gross... I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. X that out of the tape, uh, Charlie. Anyway, it's terrible. You know, if i got to do that at home, why should I do that on the congregation? Let the congregation alone. They don't need to share my difficulties. Now, there's some little minor difficulties. Maybe we would want to share together. But certainly, putting upon people your own problems is not the way to do it. In John 20, in verse 19, after Jesus was resurrected, he came in that same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst of those disciples and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And several different times he did. In verse 21, it says the same thing. Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And a little later on in verse 26, after eight days again, the disciples were within, and Thomas was there, and Jesus said, Peace be unto you. Shalom. I love that greeting. You know, in America we say, Hi. Well, that's a shortened form of howdy. And howdy is a shortened form of how do you do. And how do you do, four words, how are you doing? How are you getting along? How is it going? And so we shorten it down to hi. Or we say, bye. Now, bye is Texan for by in Oregon, and that's spelled B-Y-E. But even that should be apostrophized, apostrophized, how do you say that, at the beginning of B-Y-E, because it really is the end of goodbye. But goodbye is a contraction of God be with you, in the old English, God be with ye. So originally, that was a nice English way of saying something, God be with you. And that was a good way to send someone away, a friend. God, go with you. In Spanish, they preserved that. Adios. That means go with God. And they say it, adios. But they don't really mean go with God. It's just a greeting, you know. It's uh, ciao. They say it like that anymore now. 
or adios. But it would be good, perhaps, that we should adopt the Israeli word, which is shalom. They say that in greeting, like in Honolulu, you know, it's aloha, which means hello, and aloha, which means goodbye. And in Israeli, in modern Hebrew, it's shalom, hello, and shalom, goodbye. It's peace. Peace be with you. And that is a greeting that they continually use. Let's notice in Jeremiah 6, I mentioned Isaiah 57, 21. You know, the false prophets do not preach peace, but God's ministers are to do so. In Jeremiah, the sixth chapter, verse 14, it says, They have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And their message, therefore, is a lying message because they do not tell the people of the national iniquities and crimes, but instead try to gloss over them, which is what is, it means when it says, Heal the hurt of the daughter of my people. They're not properly diagnosed, nor mollified, nor healed, but they are simply glossed over. A little later on, in verse 11 of chapter 8 of the book of Jeremiah, they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And a little later than that, in verse 15, We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. The false ministers, it says in Micah, the third chapter, and I'll turn to that briefly and go through that one with you very quickly, in Micah, the third chapter, are continually preaching a false message because they preach for a salary. Many, many years ago, when I was a young boy, my father always related the story of how when he came among the Church of God Seventh Day and later became a member and was ordained by that organization and carried their credentials for all those years, through up until 1946 when he incorporated himself. So from 34 to 46 on the broadcast, the only credentials in his hip pocket that I ever knew about were signed by the Oregon Conference of the Church of God. But eventually, by about 1946, the Radio Church of God was incorporated as a corporate entity. And from that time on, of course, it was separate. Well, he said that there came a time when he either had to preach what he thought was false doctrine and to be loyal to their hierarchy, or else he had to simply tell them to take their salary and chuck it in the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. I don't know if he said that literally, but that's the way he characterized it and give up what you remember was a $3 per week salary. And he said, and he drummed it into our minds in the early pioneering days of Ambassador College, if you're going to take a man's salary, he said, you're going to have to preach what that man tells you to preach. I believe that. That's good advice. And it certainly is in the third chapter of the book of Matthew. This, I, I should say, Micah, sorry. The third chapter of Micah, I said, Here, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and you princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people? This is abuse. This is flaying the flock alive, these false prophets did back in that day and flay their skin from them, and break their bones, and chop them in pieces. And I'll guarantee you one thing, and I mean this with all of my heart. I have seen things done to the minds and the spirits and the characters of human beings where it would have been a kindness to have murdered them instead. Because merely murdering the body 
would have simply done them in and blacked them out. They would have been no more. They would have been dead as a doornail, but it wouldn't have touched their attitude or their character, and they would have died with the character level where they were right then. But they would not have been flayed and broken and skinned and bruised and chopped as some of them have been in times past, as some of them have been sometimes by their own leaders and those in whom they trusted. As for the pot, as flesh within the cauldron, just like a butcher chopping up a steak or a chop or a roast, then shall they cry to the Eternal, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Thus says the Eternal concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace! You see, the Bible says over in the book of Second Timothy, where Paul said that they would have a form of godliness, they would have all of the correct words, they would have the form, they would have the outward appearance. Even Jesus said that of the Pharisees. He said, you appear like whitened sepulchers on the exterior, beautiful monument, painted a dazzling white, but inside, corruption, dead man's bones, rottenness. Outside, good-looking, nice, an attractive facade. Inside, corruption. That's what Jesus said. So the message, peace. And he does not put into their mouths. He is not inspiring them. They even prepare war against him. Or as it says in the margin, they hallow or sanction war against God. Therefore night shall be unto you that you shall not have a vision. It shall be dark unto you that you shall not divine. And the sun shall go down over the prophets and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips for there is no answer of God. But Micah cries out, Truly I am full of the power by the Spirit of the Eternal and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel, the entire nation, his sin. Hear this, I pray you, you heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert everything that is right, all equity, fairness, evenness, common sense. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward and the priests thereof teach for a salary and the prophets divine for money, favoritism, preferential treatment. Yet will they lean upon the eternal and say, Is not God among us? Are not we his people? None evil can come upon us. We are of God. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest." Now, God's ministers, it says in Acts 10.36, preached a message of peace. Remember what Paul said about the feet of them on the mountain that bring glad tidings of good news or of joy or of peace. And here in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, and verse 36, it says, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by or through Jesus Christ. That's breaking into the thought where Peter said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, 
preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word I say you know, which was published throughout all Judea, and he began telling him where it started and about the baptism that John preached. And God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. I want you to notice now Romans 12 and verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says that we, as God's church, are to, as much as possible, if it be possible, verse 18, as much as lieth in you, so far as your approach or point of view is concerned, live peaceably with all men. That's creditors or debtors, members of your own family or neighbors, members of your own church, people on the job, anyone, all men, no one excluded, a peaceful person. That's why it's interesting to me that it would say in the qualifications for the ministry that a man could not be a brawler. How embarrassing it is to see appearing in print, in newspapers, as a matter of an actual court record, some people who would be in the second or third or fourth place among thousands in an echelon of a church hierarchy using horrible scatological references to persons' anatomies and characterizing another lawyer as that part of one's anatomy which would generally be thought of as heading south while that person was northbound. How embarrassing for the number two or three or whatever man to be so quoted in a court record. What does that look like to God and to the angels in heaven above? How does it appear? Are God's ministers and God's leaders to be peacemakers? Are they to preach peace? Are they to stand for peace and happiness and joy? Now, how can you have that kind of peace in spite of all these problems? I mean, if somebody else is really putting upon you, how do you do it? How do you manage it? Let's notice Hebrews 13 and verse 6, where John, uh, Paul rather gives us a little bit of a clue. Hebrews 13 and verse 6 says, So that we may boldly say, and I'm going to break in the middle of the thought, first of all, he says to be content with such things as you have, because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. How can you have this total tranquility and this peace that is beyond being shaken by any act, by any word, by anything. How can you have it? You know, I've known many rich men. I live in an environment where there are probably, I don't know, there are ten or more multi-multi-millionaires that live nearby. And they don't live in great big pretentious houses. One of them, of course, has a home over in Phoenix and another home in Scottsdale and another, well, I guess it is in Scottsdale, rather, near Phoenix and several others, and he makes, I don't know how many million a week. But anyway, there's a man out there that is one of their chief partners in Cameron Iron down in Houston, one of the biggest iron works in the world, and he's a multi, multi millionaire many times over. And I knew a man who was a multi-millionaire that uh, didn't like me very well because I talked up to him one time and he didn't like being talked up to, but his name was Hewlett Merritt. And that man actually cheated poverty-stricken students out of a few cents per hour, 75 cents per hour, for doing yard work on his mansion. He was a recluse, a kind of a hermit, miserable man, sued his own son of the law, and his son, in desperation, committed suicide, his only son. 
buried his wife in great despair in a solid silver coffin, lived his life as a lonely, old, senile man seen in his limousine creeping into Fifth and Spring Street Los Angeles rummage stores buying lampshades and old shoes. A collection inside that huge mansion that later became Ambassador Hall looked like a rat's nest, like a pack rat lived there. He owned outright some 200 separate corporations, I guess, and was the chief stockholder of U.S. Steel. And yet, as you see, as you look at wealthy, wealthy people, you would think now, you know, just analyze your own condition. What would you do? Did you hear about the guy pulling the handle in Las Vegas the other day? It was on the news. Unbelievable. He's a truck driver, and as they put on the news, he's now a retired, retired truck driver. Because he pulled the handle, and it lit up, and it paid him, I think, $1,250,000. And so they get the camera crews, and they get the TV people, and they get the casino owners, and they get him over there, and they say, hey, let's reenact it. Well, there's a lady standing there. And, you know, the usual blue hair and swollen ankles and pantsuit and a big purse and a little cup full of dimes and dirty hands. He's pulling this machine, looking at the machine. And uh, they, they said, now, wait a minute. We'd just like to move you aside. We want to reenact this for the television audience. Would you just condescend to let this gentleman up there and play it again? Fine. So she steps aside. Now, I guess it's a dollar machine or something. He puts in his coin, pulls the handle, it lights up black with, it, with, a, with another jackpot for $10,000. And the guy just went crazy. Of course, the woman went crazier uh, because, uh, actually, you could even see her. She came toward the camera started to scream and yell and, and had a salubrious outcome because the casino was so embarrassed for asking her to give up her place that they paid her another $10,000. So they lost a million and a quarter and then 20000 just to stage the thing to tell us over in Texas that somebody went over there and won a million and a quarter dollars million and a quarter thousand, uh, at a, at a one-armed bandit. Now, how happy do you think that man is going to be? By now, already, he's had his first problem. He's figured out how much of that the federal government's going to get him for. He knows that his face has been on national TV. His wife's already spent that half in her mind, and he's going to have to give that to Uncle Sam. Well, do you remember the old thing, and I won't belabor that, about the millionaire, about how unhappy people are? Well, you know, the world's riches cannot give you that ultimate feeling of total peace, happiness, and security that you really want. I know people say, well, I'd like to be insecure and be rich, but that's, that's just one of our cliches or our catchwords. But when you stop to think about total security, let's look at it this way. Jesus said, fear not those who after they have killed the body cannot kill the psyche. That's actually the closest English word to the Greek word suke, the psyche. Now, to make a long story short, as to what is that psyche, that is you. That is the you to whom I presently speak. I'm not speaking to your ears. I'm speaking to your mind. I'm not speaking to your eyes, even though they behold me. I'm speaking to the brain, the mind, that looks at and has a conception of what it sees. I am speaking to the innermost being. I am speaking to the heart. If we have absolute total tranquility, total security, and total peace of mind, we say to ourselves, even as God says to us, 
We have been saved. I want to turn and read that again to remind us of it in 1 John, the 5th chapter. Verse 12. Well, verse 11. Read up to it. In chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in and through or by His Son. He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son has not life. If you have Jesus Christ living His life over again within you, that is in the deep psyche, the innermost being, you, you have life. And here's what you can say. You can say to someone, literally, even, even a murderer, a burglar, might show up in a home with someone at night with a gun, saying, I- I'm going to kill you. You could say to such a person, oh no, you can't. It's impossible to kill me. You can stop these eyes, you can blind them so I can no longer with my innermost being see your face. You can stop these ears so I can't get up and hear the birds sing and music or hear the sound of my husband's voice or my children tomorrow. You can stop this mind from thinking and this body from working and you can stop my feet from taking another step. You can stop all of my senses and my faculties, but you can't stop me. I will survive. I, the innermost me, my being, myself, I'll still be here. Maybe just hovering about. Who knows? Solomon didn't. He said, who knows whether the Spirit goes back to God that gave it? He didn't know. Who knows whether the Spirit of a man or the Spirit of a beast goes down into the ground? He didn't know. But there is a Spirit in man. And we are a spiritual creation. And the greatest peace and the greatest security, the greatest degree of placidity, of evenness, of tranquility, is to know you are saved. And then to have that knowledge constantly reaffirmed and re-supported and reinforced and to be continually reminded, reminded of the fact that you are saved and you are going to make it. Now, if you have that in your mind and you're continually being, being reminded, I'm there. God owns me. Then you read a statement like Paul, Why fear what man will do unto me? And you don't really have fear. That's why the great martyrs, including Christ himself, faced a raging lion with a smile on their face. That's why Stephen was able, with the rocks thudding into his temple, to say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. That's why Christ, dying on the cross, was able to say, the stake, was able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because Jesus was saying, they can't hurt me. They're not killing me. They're just putting to death this thing in which I have been abiding. Now, I don't believe in the immortality of the soul. But I'm afraid God's church has strayed so far in its attempts to put down the idea of anything that could be spiritual inside of our minds that it's like there isn't any spiritual creature or creation that is actually alive within you at this minute. A a babe in Christ that has already been begotten, that is waiting to be born and will survive. There's a beautiful song, and I wish I'd brought it. Someday maybe I will bring it sung by Anne Murray about I will survive. There's another one about you needed me. 
and you place me on a pinnacle so high that I could almost see eternity. And it's beautiful words, beautifully sung by a beautiful lady with a beautiful voice. Just a marvelous song. And it reminds me of some of those feelings that you might get on those moments when you reach what I would call a real spiritual high. When you are on that pinnacle and you say with Paul, I will not fear what man can do unto me because my life is hid with Christ in God. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, to conclude and understand these words a little better, more thoroughly than perhaps we have in the past. No wonder Paul wrote in the way he did about death because this is the resurrection chapter and he's talking about being changed into immortality. And he said, Behold, I show you a mystery. Verse 51. We shall not all die. Not all of us in this living generation are going to even die. But we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and that is faster than I can do that with my hand, because you can bat your eye when you look about the room, you blink. It is so quick you can't even see it. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he quotes, in a sense, from a poem, and he says, O death, as if it is a huge, hideous, fetid monster from the green lagoon who seems to hover over us. And think about that scripture in which the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews about those who were exploited by the false preachers who all their lives were subject to fear, who because of the fear of death were brought into bondage. How many people continually, even Christian people, Live in fear of death. Answer that question deep inside your own heart. I've looked into people's eyes who have told me they're not afraid to die. I've looked into people's eyes as they died, including my own mother. I've seen people walk up, look death, stare it right in the eye, and say, come on. It's no problem with me, because I'll still be there when you're gone. Because death will finally disappear from this earth, and there won't be any more dying. Because, you see, dying is just physical. It's carnal. It is temporal. It's of the flesh. There's no dying in the spirit. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast... You see, that is a feeling of absolute permanence, of placidity, of solidarity, to borrow a word from Poland, of being immovable, being absolutely unshakable, of having peace. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain with the Lord. Next time you are upset, when somebody, I, I even got to the point where I think I hurt a fellow's feelings that called me on the phone not too long ago, was telling me about some people who were really upset, and I burst out laughing, and I wanted to, I, I shouldn't have done that. It was funny to me. It, it's funny, really, sometimes that little things, misunderstandings, little personality conflicts can upset 
people. How can that upset someone who is standing there looking at Jesus Christ of Nazareth dying on a stake? Is there any human act or deed that can upset you when you're staring death in the face and saying, you can't kill me, I'm going to live forever? I don't see how. I don't see how petty little human strife, if it's put in its proper place, can bother a person who is filled with love, a person who is brimful and flowing with joy, and a person who knows every day of his or her life peace. So let's remember, brethren, easy does it. 